Welcome back to our journey through Scripture. Today we're in the book of Nehemiah. And as you read through the book of Nehemiah this week, you probably asked, what in the world does a wall being built around the city of Jerusalem have to do with me? And so, as you know, as we've been journeying through Scripture, we've been saying that every Bible story has a point. And the point of every Bible story is a person. Every Bible story is pointing towards a person, a glorious, a beautiful person. Not necessarily the character that's represented in the Bible story that we read about, but the Old Testament in particular is pointing towards a greater person, a greater character, a greater king than the ones who are being presented here in the Old Testament. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to learn uh, that Jesus is a, an ultimate Nehemiah. Just like last week, we learned that Jesus was a greater Ezra when we looked at the book of Ezra. Well, today as we talk about that wall being rebuilt, we are reminded here in the book of Nehemiah that uh, we've been brought in to an ultimate city. And these, the, the wall around this city is God's safe and ultimate salvation that he gives us. And so if you are in Christ, you belong to that great city and you belong to that great kingdom. Well, let's jump right into our narrative summary today. Uh, Nehemiah is, is about rebuilding what's been destroyed and it's about returning and it's about restoring what sin has destroyed and it's about repenting on our part and returning to God. Now, you may be saying, hey, wait a minute, that sounds just like last week when we looked at the book of Ezra, and you'd be right. These are overlapping stories with a very similar message there. It's, it's sort of a repeat, and God's promises are kept. God is faithful, and yet they're still waiting for this Messiah. Now, chronologically, Nehemiah is here right at the end of the Old Testament history. And so there's going to be this period of 400 years of silence where they're waiting for this Messiah to appear. And he does appear. But before that happens, you'll remember last week, Ezra was about the rebuilding of the temple. And Nehemiah here is about the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. Now, every great story has a villain. We can't just say, hey, the wall was rebuilt, and hey, that was a great story. No, there's going to be a villain. What would Star Wars be without Vader? What would the Lord of the Rings be without Sauron? Now, the three villains here in Nehemiah, there's Tabia, there's Sanballat, and Geshem. Racists. All of them racist, anti-Semitic, and complete enemies of God and what God is planning to do. And they, these enemies are enraged. They're, they start mocking Nehemiah and those who are participating in rebuilding the wall. Yet Nehemiah encouraged the people to not be afraid, but to continue the work. And so beams and bars and gates and bolts and doors 
and wood and all, all those things began to come together for the rebuilding of this wall. Nehemiah negotiates a lower tax rate for the poor in the city. And, and Nehemiah did not use his power for his own gain. There's so much to learn there from Nehemiah. Yet the villains send this letter to Nehemiah four times, inviting uh, Nehemiah to meet them in a field somewhere so that they could kill him. And of course, Nehemiah never even goes. And then the villains send false prophets to attempt to have Nehemiah leave the city so that they could come and ambush him. That too fails. And so after 50, only 52 days, this, uh, this wall around the city of Jerusalem is, is, is rebuilt, it's finished. And the surrounding cities, they, they knew that it must have been God that accomplished this. I mean, it happened so fast and it was going to end up being so strong that God must be with these people. And so chapter 8, uh, Ezra, we pick up on that character that we talked about last week. In chapter 8 of Nehemiah, Ezra is reading from the Pentateuch uh, in the people's hearing, and they repent, and they renew the covenant with God. And so then in chapter 12 of Nehemiah, there's a celebration and this dedication uh, of, of the wall, and, and, and it says that they, they were so loud with their celebration and this dedication that the other surrounding cities could actually hear them. And the book ends, Nehemiah ends with saying, Remember me, O my God, for good. Now where's Jesus? Well, Jesus isn't prophesied here in the book of Nehemiah. And, but similar to the book of Ezra, where Jesus was a type of Ezra, a greater Ezra, Jesus here in the book of Nehemiah, G, Nehemiah is a type of Christ. Christ is a prophet like Nehemiah. And, and Zerubbabel, we learned back in Ezra that, that it's a type of Christ as king. And so the end of the timeline of the Old Testament is happening here in Nehemiah. Uh, the book ends around 444 BC. And yet again, there's going to be this, this 400 year period of silence where the people of God is, is wondering when is this promised Messiah going to show up? And that's when uh, the word, God's promised word, actually becomes flesh. Uh, there in the first century, Christ is born, the Messiah is on the scene. And so there's our narrative summary of the book of Nehemiah. And I invite you to go back and read it. And if you're just now joining us in this journey through scripture, uh, it's not too late <laughs> We are only uh, in the book of Nehemiah and uh, will be in this study and in this journey um, for quite some time. So we invite you to, to join us. Our sample passage for today comes from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And I've chosen this one because the, the, the entire story of Nehemiah and in particular this prayer of Nehemiah here in chapter 1 shows us some incredible things about God. We're going to look at three of those things today. The first one is God's grace to the disgraced. And second of all, God gathers us and gives us unity. And then the third and last thing is God's sovereignty and 
human responsibility working together. Well, let's read this passage here. I invite you to follow along. There's a QR code. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. This is Nehemiah speaking. He says, They said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you, yes, even my own family, and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayer of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Well, that's the reading of of, uh, that prayer there in Nehemiah. So let's look at these three things here that we want to highlight here from this uh, prayer as well as the entire book of Nehemiah. The first one is God's grace to the disgraced. When you think about God's grace, uh, it's not in a vacuum. It's not even an intellectual exercise that, that we're even doing right now as we're looking at this. When we think about God's grace, we're talking about a person. We're talking about a real God who out of God's benevolence, generosity, kindness, goodness, chooses to give favor and grace And it's usually, most likely, always happening when there's some level of discouragement, some level of being disgraced, some level of feeling like an outsider or feeling forgotten that God's grace is given. Verse 3, we just read it, that Nehemiah, upon hearing the news of God's people, God's people were exiles in Babylon, and now they are returnees coming back home to Jerusalem. And so as Nehemiah is familiar with what's going on, he he knows these people are in great trouble. It says that they were disgraced. These people, some of these people are lamenting. They are grieving that they ever went off into exile to begin with. And what does Nehemiah do with this here in verse 4? It says that he sat down. 
He sat down. What, what a remarkable attribute of a leader here that sits down and is reflective instead of just jumping right into action to fix something. He sort of feels his feelings. He sits in the mess and he meets with God. Verse four, he sat down. It says that he wept, he mourned, and he fasted. This is the hard work. This is the hard work of the rebuilding of the wall that takes place before the, before the wall is even um, started to be rebuilt. God's grace, God's grace is good news that comes to the disgraced. It's good news. It's, uh, and the good news is that God's people don't need to be be powerful culturally. God's people don't need to be powerful culturally or in power politically for God to accomplish his purposes. Let me try to say that again. God's people do not need to be powerful culturally speaking, nor do they need to be in a political position of power so that God can do his purposes and his plans. That's good news for you in your day and my day and for these people. That's God's grace coming to them in their being disgraced. St. Augustine, writing early in the 5th century in his book called City of God, he writes, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. That's what God's grace is. It's an invitation for you and I to receive something greater that God is, is offering to us. And, and they just need to be faithful to this one who had called them. God is going to be the one who ends up making sure that this wall is rebuilt and he's going to make sure that the story continues to progress, that, re, that the redemptive Historical narrative continues to stay on course and on time. And so it's not a moment for these people of God. It's not a moment for you and for me to, for us to get anxious about the story, but it's to trust in the story. They just need to be faithful to this one who's called them. And one of the reasons studying Nehemiah or... Um, you, you, you know, studying Nehemiah is not only to learn from Nehemiah itself, but also to learn how we're learning from Nehemiah. That's super important. Now, one of the reasons we're studying Nehemiah, um, you, you know, even though it's it, it can be difficult, and, and a book like Esther can these can be difficult books. Uh, to, to study, to teach on, to, to learn from. And, and they're difficult because it shows us our weakness in the way that we approach Scripture. And, and usually, uh, we, we study something like Nehemiah about this wall being built, and, and we say something like, okay, the, the Jews came back from Babylon uh, and they had to rebuild this wall of Jerusalem, and, and they did it in spite of all this opposition. Uh, you know, they organized well, and Nehemiah was such a great leader, he delegated. 
Uh, they prayed and they focused, and, and in the end, they got the wall built. I mean, how do we apply that to our lives? I see the answer usually when you're looking at the book of Nehemiah, the answer usually is it's all about uh, Nehemiah's leadership and how we need to be better leaders and how we can just follow these principles to delegate things. And we can be more organized and get, get things done. And if, and if there's opposition, if you do all those things, that's how you're really going to solve problems. And we tend to come to Scripture the same way we would the same way we would read uh, Aesop's fables. The same way we read uh, Aesop's fables that that you read the story and then you ask, "What's the moral? What principle am I supposed to do and follow?" For example, sometimes when we read about David, and we are desperately looking for some moral to follow and and we come up with something like the bigger they are the harder they fall (laughs) and and while that may be true um nehemiah is pointing us towards something so much larger here and so the bible is not a bunch of little stories but one large story one large narrative arc And the divine author is behind all of these human authors. Everything is moving forward. Everything is pointing along that arc. And so Nehemiah is pointing towards the ultimate Nehemiah. Nehemiah as a cupbearer to the king. He He was in the palace completely safe. He had it made. And left all that he had, and left all of that, and went out into danger to identify with his people. That's what Nehemiah does. And Jesus Christ, the ultimate Nehemiah. Think about Jesus. He was in God's palace, so to speak. Completely safe, had it made, and left all of that, and went out to identify with his people, and became a representative of, for those people, suffered and died being charged as a sinner on behalf of those people. Jesus came to make us citizens of the ultimate city of God. That's what we mean when we say God's grace to the disgraced. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 26, Isaiah is looking forward to this city of God. And that's what the entire Old Testament is doing, that Jerusalem is a sign of something larger that's coming. There's no, it's not about literal walls, but walls of salvation that's going to protect us from sin and death. It's not a physical city, but it's a spiritual city city, one one that's going to come down out of heaven here on earth that's coming when Jesus returns again. That's only whenever we put Nehemiah into the context of the larger arc of this redemptive narrative do we begin to see that these aren't just principles or lessons about leadership, but this is about God's grace, a person. God's grace coming to the disgraced. 
So the application for us today is not, and I repeat, not for God's people to build a wall around us to keep out all the unbelievers and to be culturally separated or to be fearful of a progressive culture or polytheistic culture that we live in. Nehemiah was in a different chapter in the redemptive narrative. He was at a different point in history. God was bringing his salvation through this particular group, through this particular nation. They were a nation state at that time in the redemptive narrative. And you couldn't have a capital city without having a wall around it for protection. And yet for us, we're to be bringing people into this city of, of God. We're, we're to be, we're to be uh, bringing people into the citizenship of God's city. We're, we're to be building that city up in collaboration with God. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah and will accomplish it though. This story doesn't create stress or anxiety or, oh no, how's God's kingdom going to be built? Rather, encouragement that it's God's grace that comes to to the disgraced. The second point we see here is God gathers us. God gathers us and gives us unity. Verses 8 and 9 that we read. Nehemiah prays, If you are unfaithful to me, this is God, he's remembering what God had said. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. I want to show you something quite beautiful Uh, in Nehemiah chapters 3 and 4. There's this uh, repetitive uh, phrase here that says next to that person and next to that person and next to that person. And the reason why Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4 is using that phrase over and over again is because there is quite a group of people that are participating together in the rebuilding of this wall. There's, there's representatives from every part of that society. It wasn't just the clergy. It's not just Nehemiah as the leader that's doing this rebuilding. It's, it's the clergy and the laity. It's men and women working there together. It's the ruling and the working classes there together. It's grouped from from different towns uh, gathering there together, groups, different people of different trades, different skill sets coming together. See, the clergy couldn't do this by themselves, just like today. We are all being gathered together. We are all ministers. See, at this point, there's beginning to be there's beginning to be a movement away from a minister, one minister doing all the ministry. You'll remember earlier, uh, folks like uh, Moses, you know, at times when you're reading Exodus, you feel like, wow, uh, all of these people are just riding on the back of 
what Moses is going to do in his leadership. But we begin to see this beautiful progression in redemptive history. That as God begins to gather them, they're all collaborating there together. Isaiah uh, chapter 19 verse 25 says that the Lord Almighty will bless them. And by the way, Isaiah's looking into the future. Isaiah already knows that this is going to happen. As he's prophesying and writing this, he He's being told by God that this is going to happen. God is going to begin to gather them, gather his people. Isaiah 19, 25 says, The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. See, God is not just about building up Jerusalem building up the nation state. Rather, God is about the nations. He's calling Assyria, my handiwork. And he's calling Egypt, my people. God has always, and the story of God has always been about God gathering people from all nations to come and worship him. That the very thing that that was in the temple is is now in us. God's very presence. And so Nehemiah is pointing towards the future in which we're all prophets, we're all priests, we're all kings, building God's kingdom together, that we're all the living temple and the Holy Spirit is within us. And we've been built together by the master builder, (laughs) And there's a foretaste and a pointer towards Christ, that we're one in Christ. There's unity that we have in Christ. I mean, for you Christian right now that's listening to this, you're a Christian first. Then you're an African American. Then you're an Asian. Then you're Hispanic. Then you're a Native American then you're African, then you're American, you're a Christian first. See, identity has, has layers that, that some things are closer, some, some things are closer down to the foundation and the very core, the very foundation of who you are as a Christian is, is that Christ goes down there, way down deep, to that very core of who you are. The bedrock. Everyone, everyone's heart has a bedrock, like, like, like the deepest part of deep of who they are. And that's exactly how deep Christ goes. And so if, if you're Chinese when you become a Christian, you, you don't become a European Christian. You, you don't become uh, an African Christian. Yes, you become a Chinese Christian, but deeper than being Chinese is that Christ is in you. That's the deepest part of your identity. Christ goes beneath you being a doctor or an artist or a writer. Christ goes so much deeper than that. Christ goes beneath you being an abused child. 
Christ goes all the way down to the bottom of your identity. That's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel. Then anyone else you meet that has that same bedrock identity, that same core identity in God, and in being a follower of Christ, it doesn't matter what ethnicity they are. It doesn't matter uh, what social class, what level of education. doesn't matter. None of those things matter. You'll find the deepest bond with those people as your brother and as your sister because their identity and your identity is in Christ. That's what God is doing when he's gathering us. That there's unity in Christ. The last thing we're looking at here is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And you may think, wow, why did you save this one for last? You could have used the entire time just to talk about this one. I I know that, and there's some really, really good books on that. Two I'm going to recommend right now. One uh, is uh, written by J.I. Packer. And uh, I'm looking here in my notes. Uh, I found it. J.I. Packer uh, writes one called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And D.A. Carson writes one called Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. Now again, we can uh, read scripture sometimes like someone would read Aesop's fables. You know, hey, what principle should I be getting from God's word? And uh, you, may, you may be tempted to read Nehemiah and think, oh, he was a great leader, and I need to be a great leader. But we should see something bigger. We should see something bigger here. And this is one of the main themes, one of the big themes of the entire Bible, and that is that God is sovereign and there's human responsibility. And both of those are working simultaneously. Let's look at verse 11, the prayer that we were just reading from Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the king, and the king gave him everything he needed to go and rebuild the wall. How's this even happening? Why is that king going to do that and supply Nehemiah with with doing this? Well, it's similar to what we learned last week. Whenever uh, we learned about uh, King Cyrus, King Cyrus, the pagan king, was led by God to allow God's people to leave from their captivity and go back home to rebuild the city and their lives. And it was so beautiful as we looked at that in Isaiah chapter 44, that Isaiah is writing about a king named Cyrus before Cyrus is even born. That is what's called God's sovereignty, divine sovereignty. God is in control of all of human history. Yet, look at verse 11 that says, Nehemiah says, Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. See, there's a reliance on God's sovereignty, God's power, God's ability to control all things towards his purposes. Remember last week we looked at Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 that says, even the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. The Lord directs it wherever he chooses. And that's because he does that because he's going to accomplish his own purposes. 
Well, in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 9, which way is it? Is it divine sovereignty or is it human responsibility? Nehemiah says, we prayed to our God and we posted a guard for protection. Wow, they do both. They pray and they post a guard there for protection. In Isaiah chapter 38, here's an interesting example where Hezekiah is about to die and he prays for God to save him. And God says to Hezekiah through Isaiah that you're going to get better and you're, you're going to get 15 more years of life and he's supposed to create this hot plaster made of figs and to put it on the boil. Well, which way is it? Is it divine sovereignty or is it human responsibility? Well, from that example, it's prayer and medicine. It's both. Both mysteriously, beautifully are working together. And many would say, hey, if God is really protecting you, you don't need to post a guard. Or some would say, if you're posting a guard, you're not really believing in God and trusting that God is protecting you. No, no, it's both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. A a great example of this in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 2, there in the first century. Jesus is uh, living a life for us that we can never live, and then he is crucified, he's dead, he's buried, he rises from the dead. And there, early in the first century, Uh, Peter is preaching a sermon, and in that sermon, he mentions that you crucified Jesus with your wicked hands, yet it was the foreknowledge and plan of God to allow that to happen. That's incredibly, incredibly uh, poignant example there of how divine sovereignty and human responsibility works very, very well together. And we think about uh, our success. Our success, well, is it God's part or is it my part? And that just means that our our success is not generated from just our ability. Or it's not as though we can't reach success because of human opposition. Now, the picture of this is God's kingdom is his kingdom. His kingdom. Uh, God is building his kingdom is the picture. God is building his, his kingdom and we are these living stones that are being built. And Christ is the cornerstone of this. Every one of us, every Christian is a minister. We're all ministers I mean, that city could not be rebuilt just by the clergy. It took all of them being gathered together in the diversity, in the different groups. We, we need all hands on deck. And God in his divine sovereignty is going to use all of our gifts, talents, abilities, even our weaknesses and limitations. And God has brought together a people to be the church We all have specific backgrounds. I'm even thinking about our church, the Table Church, San Francisco. We have amazingly different backgrounds. We are an incredibly diverse 
multicultural church. It's beautiful how God has brought us all together to accomplish what God has called us to do, and that is bringing others into the kingdom. Michael Green, here's another book for you. Michael Green's book, Evangelism in the Early Church. He mentions the earliest church grew through evangelism. I'm sure you'd think that they were great preachers in those days and you just brought your non-Christian friend to hear that great preaching. Rather, he says, you didn't rely on a great preacher. You did the evangelism yourself. Meaning, you, you tell others about this king and this kingdom human responsibility or collaboration with God and divine sovereignty of God gathering people from all nations to come together and have unity. So every person is necessary to do the work of the ministry together, collaborating with God. Uh, In closing here, Nehemiah chapter 2, we we won't have time to look at this, but Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 17 says that Nehemiah gathered the people and said, come, let us build. Verse 18 there in chapter 2, they strengthened their hands for the work. It means they relied on God. And, and that the joy of the Lord was their strength to accomplish this task that God was calling them to do. Verse 19, others jeered at them. Others despised them saying, what are you doing? Why are you rebuilding this wall? And chapter two, verse 20 in Nehemiah, it says, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build There it is, God's sovereignty and human responsibility that the God of heaven will make us prosper. That's God's part. And we, his servants, we will rise. We will build. What a privilege. What an honor to collaborate with this creative, most powerful God who has the most epic, beautiful story laid out before us. We are participants with God This wall that surrounds us is God's salvation. And we are about building God's kingdom in collaboration with Him. Let's rely on the joy of the Lord as our strength together as we pray. Lord, dear Lord, you are the master builder of your kingdom. Gather your people. We ask you right now, gather your people from the nations. Help us celebrate our unity together in Christ. And help us collaborate with you in the building of your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And it's in Christ's name that we pray it. Amen.